Welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday and every Saturday evening for education, awareness, enlightenment, and entertainment, primarily surrounding the issues of the aftermath of crime. So I want to welcome everyone across the nation uh, and locally in the state of Connecticut and South Carolina, where Delilah is located, and um, everywhere else to say we have a very, very unique show this evening, and I was uh, very fortunate to be able to uh, attend a very special event this past Monday. If you will look on my uh, website at donagore.com, you can see uh, a blog that we did, and our show this evening deals with uh, wrongful conviction and exonerees, um, and I'm very proud to have the um, exoneree from 2006, James uh, Calvin Tillman, with us, and um, and uh, Jeff Kimball, who is a co-author of a very inspirational book. But before I bring them in, I just want to say uh, good evening, Delilah, and I'm very excited about this uh, this evening's topic. How are you? Hi, doing good, Donna. Um, I am very excited about this topic as well. It's something that you know, fortunately is getting a lot more attention than it used to across the country, and we're finding in more and more uh, wrongful convictions and what states and, and uh, prosecutors are doing to make it right. So I think it's a very important topic as well, and we should bring on our guests. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm just going to give a very short thumbnail sketch and they can kind of fill in the blanks. As I said, James, James Tillman um, was wrongfully convicted uh, and exonerated from a crime um, and uh, convicted or was supposed to serve a 45-year sentence in Connecticut for um, rape and beating of a woman. And uh, that, that of course, proved to be totally untrue. And um, he served many years in order to try to clear his name and, and not make a plea. Um, and then he met a, a very inspirational man as well, um, uh, Jeff Kimball, who is his co-author, who has his own story as well. So I just say good evening, um, Jeff and James. Thank you so much for being on Shattered Life. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, um, it's a pleasure being here and and um, pleasure being here with um, Jeff Kimball, um, a, a co-author of our book. Your best buddy, no doubt, I think. Yeah, we've spent yeah. a lot of time together yeah. over the last six I, years. It's I, great I to be call here, Donna. Friend. I, I don't call him friend anymore. I call him family. That's right. Well, yeah, I I, I can imagine. Um, how, did the two of you, how did the two of you meet and get together to write this book? I mean, did you know each other through um, any particular organization, or how did you meet? You want to do that, Steph? Yeah, well... Fate brought us together. Um, 
and James would have you would say, and I'd agree that there was a much larger purpose in the room. We, um, uh, you know, we had obviously James had been through this experience and and um, was thinking about you know writing a book. You know, I'm sure he was approached a lot. I had spent a career uh, in politics and public policy and in speech writing, and um, you know, was looking to write a book as well, given my background, my personal interest. I met James really through uh, my cousin, but on a lark. It was just something that, you know, I at the time didn't know if this was how real it was. I think James, when he met me, didn't know how real it was. We got into a room and we talked. And um, as James does, when you meet him, he just totally opened me up. And he, James has this innate ability to look at a person within a matter of seconds and get a real honest read. And I think in part that's from, you know, having to spend 18 years in prison and having to live, you know, second by second to understand what's going to happen in a situation. So James was able to kind of look in my heart and see exactly who I was probably in ways that I didn't even understand. And then mm-hmm. um, right after our meeting, we talked for about an hour and uh, literally right after the meeting, James gets a text from somebody, uh, the mother of somebody he served in prison with who he hadn't talked to before or since and says, you know what, James, you should consider writing a book. And he said, you know what? All right, that's it. It's done. <laughs> and then six years <laughs> later, we're here. Yeah. Um, how long did it actually take in terms of the overall, you know, from the moment I'm going to write a book to, to the book? So you're saying it took six years of, you know, of sort of trials and tribulations of, of getting it right? Well, there were James can speak of this as well, but there were two parts of it. I mean, one is it's not an easy story to open up. And I'm sure, you know, based on your past, Donna, you can understand this, is when you go through parts of this, and even when I watch James speak, when James speak, he speaks, he gives his entire heart and soul to it, and it literally sometimes brings him back to that space. So that was one part of it, but the other part of it is, is you know, is my our lives, you know, were each touched by tragedy, by life. We lived, we were living life. I had, you know, had some losses that kept me back, and then we went into the publishing process. And this publishing process, as we all know. It isn't easy to write a book these days, to get a book published. We knocked on hundreds of doors. And, you know, the wrongful conviction story has been told. How do we slot this? Is it true crime? Well, it, you know, it's not true crime. It's not just a Christian inspiration. It's not just um, the wrongful conviction story. Uh, this book truly is unique and di- very different because of James. And that's what we've, you've got to listen to James and his story, but because of what James went in, went to, we finally found a publisher who read the book and said, you know what, this book's about inspiration and it's about helping people find conviction in their own lives. And we said, yep, that's it. And then a marriage was made and the book is now out. Well, that's great. Maybe this is a prime opportunity to opportunity and maybe to say a couple of times, where can people get the book? Because we want to be able to, uh, help you promote it and, 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 and sell it. Well, if you go on the power of con- the power of com, the power of com, you will find links to the book, but it can be found at your local Barnes and Noble or maybe the best place to buy things these days. It seems like you can buy pretty much anything in the world today on amazon.com. So <laughs> you can, short of a house, you can, you certainly can buy our book there. Um, and if, you know, there's always links on the site if you have trouble buying a book, but in, in your local bookstore or on amazon.com would be great. Oh, that, that's great. Um, James, what, what do you think is, is the best way to, to, uh, 
to bring this issue of exonerees to the forefront and to have people embrace it and not view it negatively. I mean, what has been your response in, you know, all of the public things that you've been doing? I know locally, in you know, in the Hartford area, you've been very well received, but what would you say generally about, about the issue and how do we get people to pay attention? Hello? Oh, from me, from my experience, yeah. from coming yeah. out of prison in Connecticut, um, I, I, you know, I just got a lot of love. I mean, from um, different agencies. I mean, agencies throughout Connecticut, um, through agencies like um, I don't know if I could say the name, but uh, Maryland sure. mm-hmm. and um, Bloom, Bloom and Shapiro, McCarter um, in English, um, um, Cunnings and Lockwood. Um, I mean, it's just so many different agencies just came to my aid and, you know, and they gave me help. I mean, they helped me to balance the checkbook, you know, with um, Bloom and Shapiro, you know, and the great Larry Davis used to um, take me in and just sit me down and we used to have lunch and he used to just show me how to budget, how to, you know, with my job that I had at um, Capital Region Education Council, which is called Correct. Um, 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 the great Bruce, Bruce Douglas, he um, gave me a job there. Um, he seen me on TV, and him and his daughter, and they was watching it, and they, um, and she asked him, Dad, why don't you um, see that guy need a job? I mean, you know, she said he's so forgiving. And from that, he, they contacted the Innocent Project, um, and then the Innocent Project contacted me, and um, I was working, you know, within, you know, months after getting out. You know, and um, it's just been great. I mean, Connecticut has been great to me, and you know, they established the law so that guys that's getting out could could um get compensation. It's a slow process, and um, that's why they created um McCarty in English. With um, it was headed at back then by Tim Fisher, um, the Innocent Fund, and um, that's a fund that that's you know you can put money into, and then guys that's getting out they can take the money out, you know, to give them a little help living, and then when, once they get compensated, then they could put it back in for the next person. Wonderful. So that's how Just as an example for the listeners, James, how much money, when you were released from prison, what what were you given to start your new life or to get back your old life, actually? Well, I went to the the welfare department and I was given a, I think it was a hundred and fifty dollar um, food um, voucher, um, um, known back then as food stamps. I think it was one hundred and fifty, could have been two hundred, either one hundred fifty, two hundred, and I just, you know, just gave that to my mother to help out with the food and stuff, and that's about all I received. Um, I mean, that that's the amazing thing when you think about James's story and maybe one of the, you know, there's so many positive things that have come out because of James. But um, because of James' experience, Mark, as you mentioned, McCarter established the Innocence Fund. Um, it's amazing to serve 18 years in prison, wrongfully convicted over 18 years as James did, but then to come out and basically be given nothing. And so this fund is established so that um, be the precedent set in James' case so that the others who follow don't have to do what James did. I mean, you know, it's hard enough to do what they did, and then to have to reenter society is hard. But then to re- have to reenter society would basically, you know, here's a form. 
Um, right. So now, fortunately, in Connecticut, others don't have to do that. But as you mentioned, that's not something that is standard nationwide. Um, and I, you know, think as a matter of public policy, it should be. There, there are, you know, you can apply for compensation. That takes sometimes years. You know, that process is never short and simple. And again, in James' case, it was precedent setting. So there was a lot of legal wrangling that went on, a lot of legislative wrangling that went on. One would hope and think that for, you know, nationwide, for exonerees, that the federal government would set up a fund so that when these people are released, they have some kind of cushion, you know, so that people don't have to go out and do private fundraising like James does. Um, to try to, to to try to put money in these funds, you know, for people like James. Right. Do, do you see do you see yourself uh, not only well I know you're advocates for the cause and you're you're promoting the book and uh, James are you are you taking part of the proceeds and giving them back to this fund or using some of them for yourself and your family? But do you see yourself as trying to get. Connecticut as the precedent-setting state for this one, trying to get other states to uh, kind of fall in line with this? Yeah, I think anything that's positive and something that has an effect on helping people, I think, you know, other states, um, they look at it, and, you know, some states will take it and some states won't. But, you know, like you, know, like you said, the Innocent Project is more on a – you know, it's more on a national level, and I think that when the heads of the Innocent Project and they see certain things and they see that it's a good thing, they they normally push good ideas and good things to help out exonerees. Yeah, right. the, the Innocence Project has done amazing work, and I think what to your question, Donna James, just a few weeks ago was the you know one of the features at a fundraiser for the Innocence Fund. So he he does give a lot of his time towards these things. Um mm-hmm. I know the National Innocence Project is focused mostly on the exoneration side. Um but you know we would you know I would love personally to see a a, a nationwide fund set up for for um victims of uh of wrongful pr- uh, prosecution. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know what might be helpful for listeners as well and I know that you've done this many times but and you, uh, you probably, you know, uh, can do it in your sleep, James. But just to kind of give a bit of the backstory of what happened and what what got you in. I know there was a, a an incorrect, a, a very mi- uh, mistaken eyewitness um, identification that that landed you in in prison wrongfully. Can you give us a bit of the story so that people know? Um, you know, what it is that you dealt with, and then we can get into some other aspects as well? Well, um, yes. Um, at the beginning, um, I was I was um, working at um, a car wash, and I was, um, I was picked out of a lineup, um, a photo array lineup. And um, as I was picked out of the lineup, I was, you know, um, was a suspect, and I was brought in to custody whereas um I was arrested for um first degree sexual assault, kidnapping, assault and a few other um charges and um at which time I I was offered I think it was like five years. Um I was two years in the system, almost close to two years in the system already. Uh, I just didn't have the money for bond. Um so I I was offered that and um 
I was told that I can get up to close to um, close to a hundred years if I go to trial. Um, if I didn't plead guilty, and um, I refused to plead guilty, um, I went to trial with no um, no concrete evidence. I think it was all just circumstantial evidence, and um, I was convicted, and um, I was given forty five years upon um, my conviction, and um, I started doing time. Um, I started to file appeals. Um, I was shipped from one penitentiary to the next, um, out of state. Um, I was in the supermax for almost uh, a little over three years, three over about three years. Um, I was in the super supermax, which was in Virginia, Wallace Ridge um, Prison. I was down there for a while, um, and I was in numerous prisons throughout Connecticut. And um, I applied for appeals, habeas corpus. Um, and I applied for um, for DNA testing um, back in 90, I think it was 91, which, you know, DNA, the science wasn't that great back then. So, um, and then later on in 2000, I think it was like 2005, 2000, right before I got out, um, um, the Innocent Project came, they came a little bit before that, and they, took my case, and they did the DNA testing on me and found out that I wasn't the um, the person that was serving this 45 years and the person that was accused of rape and kidnapping. And I was released on June 6, 2006, um, a free man. Um, I was free. I wasn't actually, charges wasn't actually dropped, but I was let out. I think it was on a promise to appear. Which I had to go back to court to get the, to get the um the case thrown out completely because they had another little test that they was doing on another a sample and then they finally got that back and then when I went back to court it was just uh, I was just all the charges were thrown out. That's that's just incredible. What in your case? Um, precedent setting again, also because we had a very serious problem. Um, under the Governor Rell's administration with a backlog of DNA. And didn't this kind of jumpstart the idea that we have to start addressing that in this state as a result of your case, or am I wrong on that? Um, yes, I think that DNA is a, um, a very important part of um, our lives now. I mean, times are changing from fingerprints to DNA. I think DNA goes more deeper and um, they had a law that was they was trying to pass too. That I think it was the Katie was it the Katie law, Jeff? It was yeah. the Katie law, and um, the mother of her victim um, was you know she's I think she has it in twenty eight got it passed in twenty eight states, and we was trying to get it passed in Connecticut. Whereas um, if you are suspected of a crime. Um, like burglary or um, sexual assault or harming a kid, that they will run your DNA. And they have um, found a marker that it doesn't disclose, you know, other information concerning you. It just lets the authority know that you matches other cases that's out here, prevents you or a person, that will prevent a person from committing any other crime. They will be held, whereas if they don't do that, then that person could, be committing crimes and nothing never shows up and they can be let back out, you know, with 
you know, and commit other crimes. And, I mean, so to me, um, DNA is so important in our lives today. It's like it saved my life. You know, it gave me a new life. So that would essentially eliminate you kind of right off the bat if, if that was the case, huh? Right. Then, yes, yes, yes. I wouldn't have, yes, I um, wouldn't have served um, 18 and a half years in prison if DNA was at this level of scientific, um, you know, this level of science oh. in the 2000s, in the, in the 2000s, opposed to 88. And that raises a, an interesting question, too, um, about, one, the evidence in his case, and, the, uh, two, the importance of keeping the evidence. In, in James' case, as he mentioned, um, his finger, there were fingerprints found in the scene. There weren't his fingerprints. The person that drove the car away couldn't drive stick. James loves cars, could drive stick in his sleep. Uh, stick meaning standard car. Um, there were blood tests done at the time that showed that James could have done it, but what wasn't mentioned was that 50% of the black male population could have done it. The blood tests back then were crude. So as you mentioned, Donna, the, the, the whole case came down to eyewitness identification. Um, and, you know, in, in the case of the photo array that James mentioned, the photos were different sizes. So, I mean, it is, it is and what level of detail were in the photos? How were they presented? They weren't presented in a standard fashion. So there's a whole myriad of issues there to go through. But then, as James said, in his case, they were able, you know, it's, you, when you read the book, you're going to find out there were some remarkable circumstances that even went through in finding and losing the evidence and how it came, you know, how they were able to, 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 to free James. But, but keeping this evidence so that you can actually test it because, you know, there are some people out there who are innocent, um, but maybe the evidence hasn't been kept or has been lost. And then what happens in those cases? Um, you know, that, that's just tragic. So as James mentioned, having Katie's law in place or having standardized systems in place where we can end the backlogs on DNA and we can get these people tested as quickly as possible, then hopefully something like what happened to James could never happen again to anybody else. You know, one, one person is too many. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, I, I want to say, too, one of, the, one of the things that kind of plays into this is the fact that you, you have said that your initial defense was, was not adequate. Uh, James, is this, is this true? If you might have been a person of means or had a lot of money and had a different defense team in the beginning, would this have totally changed the tables for you as well? Well, I, I I caught a little bit of what you said. Um, I think that yes, I think that the legal the legal system does play a part. I mean, um, as far as you know, having money or not having money, you know, um, being able to have a good defense and not have a good defense. Um, but I mean, but the the public defenders um, that helped me mm-hmm. who you know, prove the difference. I mean, um, Jerry Smythe, who was the, created the Innocent Project here in Connecticut, you know, he brought it to the forefront, got it started. Um, Karen Goodrell and Brian Carlo, who was public defenders, who came to my aid and fought and got me right. free. So we're not you know, so, 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 I mean, the public defenders to say some cases, Yes, right. in some cases the public defenders, I can't, speak on all public defenders, but I think that um, public defenders are good lawyers. It's just that their caseloads are so heavy 
and they it's like they're pressured to do things because of the money, the funding and everything, you know, that they can't really show up like they should. You know, if somebody had a lawyer that they was paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for, they're going to have their whole team out there. They're going to work. They're going to investigate it. They're going to, but the public defenders are limited, you know, with their resources limited. They have a big case load and, you know, they're just trying to close cases and, you know, to, to, to just, you know, to do their job to the best of their ability. But, you know, it's hard. You know, it's hard to get a, a fair trial like that, you know. for the listeners, and you could talk a little bit about this. Um, I, I, when James went in, 
you know, he went in fully expecting to go home that night to have this steak dinner that his mom was cooking. And exactly. and then the next day would come and he'd be like, I, I know I'm getting that. Okay, well, maybe today is the day they're going to find out. You know, you get to trial. Well, maybe now. And even after the trial, it's like, oh, well, my appeal. Yeah. So I, I think for a long time, James didn't see himself as a victim because he was getting out. Right, James? Yes. For, for you the have first... that mindset. It's only a short period of time. I could do this, right? Yes, but then but then it turned into after you go to trial and you give them 45 years, now you forget about, you know, being a victim. I mean, you think about surviving, you know, and, you know, I was just thought about just surviving, you know, each and every day. I mean, I was like, wow, 45 years, you know, I, I you know, am I ever going to get out? I think the biggest thing was just clearing my name, you know, up rape. I think that was one of the most important things to me is clearing my name up rape. Right. Well, and maybe James, our audience can you speak like, to the Im- can you speak to the impact that all of this had on your family? Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's not just one partic- one person who went through this. It's it's a ripple effect throughout the whole family and and your community. Right. I'm sure. Yes, I mean, you know, um, you know, your mother. You know, my mother. She had to, you know, be the mother of um, a son that's labeled a rapist. You know, and my brother had to live with uh, being the brother of a of a brother that's labeled a rapist, and my and my other younger brother who passed away while I was in jail, while I was in prison, um, had to also you know live with that. And then you're talking about all my friends and and the rest of my family. You know, this is this is a heinous crime. This is something that was you know affecting the whole family. You know, we all had to live with it. You know, and and yes. You know, I'm free now, but, you know, them was, you know, 18 and a half long years of being labeled, you know, a rapist. The remarkable thing is that, you know, maybe you can tell, share the story about you made this conscious decision. Wasn't there a a plea agreement that you refused? And and tell us why and how, you know, you you were a very honorable man, as, as Jeff had said, on the C- on CTN, um, how did you come to this decision that you had to make the fork in the road, James? Well, I guess um, I, I guess after a while, you 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 see people and you know you see young people and they're coming in and out of jail and and you look at you know your life and you and you know and then I I started to talk about you know um, giving my life to God and. And I've just finally just gave my life to God, and you know, and um, that was, I think that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me since I've been in jail was that I gave my life to God, and um, once I did that, you know, I I um, there was a transformation that took place, you know, and um, and um, when that happened, it seemed like I started studying, I started to um, I started to apply it in my setting that I was in. I started to apply it inside the jail. And, you know, I used to kind of start it on when I got out of SEG. I was in the Supermax when I did that. And um, the guy that contacted the Innocent Project for me when he got out, um, I had gave my life to God in front of him. And he said, well, I'm going to contact the Innocent Project when I get out. And I say, yeah, right. You know, because, you know, people say they're going to do certain things, but you know, he's just never really thinking they're gonna do it. And um, he had uh, some just happened to him in the jail where he just got um, beat up by an inmate that's been there for 
for years, and um, they had him in a cell, and he came in a cell with me, and when he came in a cell with me, we used to talk, and he said, I remember when you first came in, and, you know, he told me about the Psalms he read. You know, he read Psalms 20, 23, 35, 70, and 91, and, you know, he had the same type of case, and he had got out. You know, he just, his, his mother told him to read them, so I said, let me start reading maybe, you know, and I tried everything else. And I just started reading them Psalms every day and not thinking of nothing. Then I started reading the Bible and then started reading Proverbs. And then I started reading about Joseph, how he went to jail, you know, how um, he got falsely accused. And I said, wow, this stuff didn't happen, you know, a long time ago, you know, Way in life. Then, you know? Yeah. And I was like, whoa. So, and then I started understanding And then I just... Gave my life to God, and my mother, she came up to a visit, and she said, there's something different about you. And I said, well, um, Mom, there's nothing. And she's like, no, there's something different about you. And when she said that again, I just bust out crying, and she started crying. And I told her I gave my life to God. I said, I said I gave my life to God, and and we were just rejoicing, and I was in a big old jumpsuit in a supermax prison, and I'm just, we just glorifying God, and and at that time, um, I finally got out of um, Northern Prison, and I started to go to Bible study, started coming out, studying my Bible, started to um, join the choir, um, and just, you know, just started to, and then really started to reaching out to younger people and, you know, and just talking to them about the Word of God and just about life and and. And like I said, there was a change and start being happy for them when they go home, when they, you know, when they was about to go home. And then the guy said, James, you know, you're talking to me like you're going home. And I said, you know, I am going home because you're going home, you know. And he was like, wow. And I, and that was a good feeling to love and to and to want what's good for the next person. It was mm-hmm. a good feeling. And then next thing I know, you know, God let me out and sent me home. And I was like, wow, which I never thought what happened, you know, and I was like, wow. Yeah. You know what and, I'm wondering? Can you can you tell us can you tell us um the uh offer that was made and the offer that you turned down in terms of a plea deal and 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 why and why you chose to, you know, stay in longer before you cleared your name. Didn't they offer you a deal where you could have gotten out sooner, James? Yeah, that was at trial, yeah. yeah. At trial. What happened there? Well, I mean, the offer that they offered me was, I mean, I just felt that I couldn't accept any offers. I mean, there was, you know, there was no room for offer. The offer, what I was just looking at was, you know, you have the wrong person. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. I, I can't take anything. So, you know, what was the offer? But right, they, right before trial, yeah. Well, right before the trial was over, they 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 pulled James in and basically said, you know, if you admit guilt, admit, admit that you did this, right, right, James, with time served, he basically would have been out in oh, yes, you know, six months to a year. That that's yes, six, six months to a year. So, yeah, and, so that was the choice. Yeah, but and, I was, you know, I, like I said, I didn't do this. Um, you know, you're you're telling me to plead guilty to beating up a, a lady and and kidnapping her and 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 raping her, and I just was like, you know what? There's no way I can plead guilty to something like this. 
James mm-hmm. is always um, very humble about this, and and when when we talk about it, um, you know, I, I'm always amazed because, quite frankly, a lot of the people that listen to this and come up and talk to me about it are always like, I can't, you know, are, are always inspired by one, you know, many things that James says, but this is one of them. James. Um, has a code and I look at James as he's got a code of honor and, and, you know, for James, like as he's talking about this now, it is not even a question. It's like, it's not even something that really needs to be answered, but, but there are a lot of people out there like your listeners. For those of you listening, if you had a choice, 45 years in prison or six months, but you had to admit to guilt to something you didn't do, how many Mm -hmm. of you out there would take that choice? And really? I, you know, I think a lot of people out there would say, oh, well, you know, six months out, I'll take it. And James looked at it and said, I'd rather serve a hundred years. So they slapped him with half that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's and, just remarkable. And also, Not very many people also, would do that, I um, think. And, and also, I just want to, to um, just put out there that when I accepted God in my life at that time, I have forgave everybody because I couldn't move forward serving God without being forgiving. And I said if the person knowingly did something um, that, you know, that she shouldn't have done or if the if the um, the justice system had did something knowingly that they, you know, that they shouldn't have or, you know, whatever the case was, who's ever involved, you know, I forgive everybody, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm moving on. You know, and I was in jail when I did that. I forgave everybody at that point in time. And that's why when I walked out the door, you know, I didn't have a lot of malice in my heart. You know, I didn't have revenge in my heart. I didn't have anything in my heart. All I had was love in my heart because I already had put that in there. Well, and, you know, to me if, that's uh, remarkable. Yeah. Yes, and if there's one thing that we want to communicate to your listeners, and and if, if the purpose of this book is one to tell everybody about James's story and his wrongful conviction, but I think James would say, yes, that's important. But if I can inspire other people, and the key, we all live in prisons of our own making. Every one of us, we live in prisons of hate and indifference and intolerance and anger um, about all the things that happen to us or all the stuff we find ourselves in. And what James did is that James taught us all how to release ourselves from prison. Even you know, in James's case, before he was released from prison, and that key, the key to, every, to to all of us releasing ourselves is forgiveness. And that, it was such a lesson for me, and I think that's why I wanted to be to do this book with James. Is I want, especially, to teach people who are struggling or facing adversity, who are lost, or young people, to let them know that there's more to their life than all the hate and the anger, and that they can release themselves. And if they read the book, they'll find out, you know, just how James did it. But it was, it's pretty simple. At the end of the day. Do you choose love or hate? You know, and that's well, what James, gra- James just gave a graduation speech, and that's basically what he told the audience, you know, choose love. It, yeah, it really comes down to that at, 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 the, at the core level, I think. But, uh, James, tell us about um, your, your experience in, in college and what, you, what, you, what your degree is in and, and what your future plans are now. I know you're, you're, you're working with the Community Partners in Action uh, part time, but what what are your aspirations for the future? I'm just like I'm going to school um, uh, at Goldwyn College in East Hartford, and um, I I love my school. I love uh, President Scheinberg and 
all the staff there. I mean, I was just, you know, I was just blown away coming to that school. Um, growing up in Hartford um, was was it was it was difficult um, at first. I mean, you know, we had like families and stuff like that, but um, I think my education level I didn't get to the level of education that I should have been at. Um, and when I got to go, when I was trying to go to, I was trying to take college courses in jail, and um, they stopped all the funding for the college courses. And um, they did. I, yeah, they had stopped the funding for the college courses in jail. Um, so you had to be under 21 or something to take courses at that time when I was going. And um, what I guess what happened was. Um, some of the jobs, some of the people get selected. Some of the training, some of the people get selected. It, it was just like you know, it's like you had to be like hit the lottery to get to get somewhere. And the guys had so much time. I guess once they lock onto a position, they're not letting it go, you know. So, and then you had so many guys coming in jail, in jail, you know, and and then dealing with some of the circumstances, you know, surrounding having a rape charge in jail, you know. So, um. I, I guess at the end of the day, um, Goodwin helped me to achieve, you know, my academic level, which is math, my basic math, science, you know, all my basic classes. And then once I got through that, then I started to taking my human services courses. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a whereas I had to start from the beginning, and then work my way back up to a college level. Did you get an associate's degree this past? Yes, I yes I did. I got I got my associate's degree, and I was so you know proud of that. And now I'm in the bachelor's program, and um, and they I had some credits from jail, um, and they took the credits, and now I have um over amount associates. You know, have a more than more than associates now have um, my jailhouse credits that I have from Asnatuck and Nagatuck Community College. And now I'm working towards my um, my bachelor's degree in human services. Um, I I like the field human services because it could varies from working with youth, working with adults, working with um, just it has a, a variety of things that I can do. Um, I'm just, you know, when I finish my education, wherever God put me at, I mean, he put me at CREC, working with kids. He put me at, at Capital Region Educational Council, um, motivating kids, talking, uh, mentoring. So I just know God always leads me somewhere that he wants me to be. And through my experience, um, maybe it can help some kids or adults or ex-offenders. Do you have a dream job in mind, uh, James? If you could, what what kind of a job would you really like when you, you when you get out of of, of your school? I, I I I I love I love my college. I love um I I would probably want to I probably would want to work at Goldman College one day. I mean and and I mean that or you know um I'm or at Crick you know or at you know at a detention center or just somewhere where I can. Where I could be, you know, where I'm needed at, and where I can make a difference at, and where I can use my experience that mm-hmm. being wrongfully incarcerated to help the youth or adults, anybody that's struggling, you know, with 
we're moving forward, and you know, and that's where I'm at. I mean, you know, I think once you allow God to put you where He wants, that's where He wants you to be. That's where you're needed at. Mm-hmm. And, and Donna, it's the the fact that James um, and he's worked so hard would go and uh, to back to school. I mean, James could have very easily just kind of mailed it in. And he's, he's given, sacrificed so much, nothing else could be asked of him. But then he's, he's chose to take this time. Um, and, you know, we're not as young as we used to be, I guess. But at this, you know, at our age, um, and he's taking this time now because he's saying this is important to me. But also I think because when James works with kids, he wants to be able to walk the walk and say not just that, you know, you should go back to school because it's important. Well, here's James working really hard to earn his degree. And here's my favorite leading question I get to ask every time I'm with James. And, James, what date did you earn your associate's degree from Gooden College? (laughs) On um, June 6, 2015. Same date that he was freed. So he freed himself again through education. And and, and, and if I could just mention one other thing about James. Uh No No matter what James does, James mentors people. And um, that's his. That's one of his many gifts. And I watched James speak to kids. I, there was one one speech he gave in, the, in in inner city school in Hartford. And when James walked in, there was a room full of hundreds of kids, and they were all kind of like arms folded, sitting back. You know, what's this guy talking about? What's he here to talk about? Kind of very, you know, they're kids. They're kids like anywhere. Kind of skeptical. James starts talking, and by the end of the conversation, and I'm sitting in the back of the room. Everybody is leaning forward. They're hanging on every word. And then after James was done, there were a line of kids, you know, 20 deep to try to get to talk to him because he touched them um, and inspired them. And, you know, that's one of the gifts. So James would be so good working, and Goodwin has been extraordinary in, in embracing James and leading him through this process. They take people like James and they help them kind of tap into their potential. And, and so I just look at James and his ability to touch lives. And, you know, I've, I can just tell you from personal experience, he's transformed my life. And if he's transformed my life and if people read the book, I think he'll transform and inspire them and just think about how many people he could do. So if, if everybody out there, not only buy the book, but, you know, have James come to your local school or your community group or Definitely. church or whatever. I, I, yeah, I think that was – and ha, have you been going back into the penal system and, and talking to inmates, or do you not want a part of that anymore, anymore James? Well, um, lately I've just been, like, um, I had – when I first got out, I was doing, like, a lot of speakings and – I was doing a lot of, um, like, motivational speakers in schools and colleges and everything. And mm-hmm. what happens was um, you get burnt out after right. a while. You know, you, you're giving up your life. You're giving your life story. You get it constantly coming out and it's constantly, you know. And, you know, and then I had, to, you know, to give myself a break for a minute. And then um, I started my school process, you know, because you also need tools and what, and what Goodwin is doing is they're giving me tools now to utilize my experience, you know, yeah. and I'm starting to, to put it all together, and it's really helping me, you know, it's helping me to to better organize, to better understand things and why, and through my experience I could see why this took place and why that took place. And I, I guess I guess at the end of the day, when I was in my cell, I had young people in my cell. And I used to just see the young kids come in 
20 years old, 21 years old. Um, one of my cell partners was 21 years old out of New Haven. I was helping him with his case, reading his case, looking over his case, you know, just just giving him my views of his case. And he decided to go to trial, which I was totally against. Um, he had five witnesses. One was his cousin. And it was I think it was a double murder. And when he came back from trial, he went to trial, he came back from trial, he went to SAG for the weekend so he, they can let him just have some time to himself. And he lost trial. And then he came back in the cell. And what I found out was that he was dropped off before in New Haven. Um, I, I guess he was like, they used to call him crack babies where the mother's out there in the street and then she had a baby and she knew she couldn't take care of him. She dropped him off. And later on, I found out that everything that he'd been going through, all he ever really wanted, I, you know, I told him, write your, write your mother, you know, write her. You know, he was like, I got her address. Somebody gave it to me. And I said, write her, you know. And, and he wrote her. And he didn't get a letter back. And then we kept waiting and waiting. And, and he kept looking at me like, I, I knew I shouldn't have wrote. And I was like, oh, my God, please just get his boy a letter. And he finally gets the letter. It comes through the trap, and it was thick. And I looked, and I saw the shores. And he looked and opened it up, and she had pictures of his of his, um, his sister's kids and all his family. And we just both just bust out crying in the room. And, oh, and, he, forgot all, and he forgot all about his He's about to get sentenced to 60 years and 17 running wild. He forgot all about that. That didn't even matter no more. What mattered was he received the pictures from his mother, his biological mother, and that oh. was like, I just watched him. He was like, oh, now I can I can hold on to something. He can like carry that. on because you gave him inspiration and he had the family connection, didn't he, James? Yes. So I said to myself, when I get out, I'm in front of some of these kids now before I was behind them because he's doing 60 with 17 running wild. Now I'm free, and I'm in front of that same kid that just got the 60 years. What could I try to tell a kid to not become him? What enlightenment can I give that kid to not become that kid with 60 years and 17 running wild? So I said, I'm going to do my best to tell the kid to not get the 60 and the 17 running running wild. I'm going to do my best to stop that kid from becoming him. Oh, wow. That, that is very, very powerful. And I am so glad. I'm so glad that we, you know, we've had this opportunity. And I hope we have about uh, maybe nine minutes or so. And I, I have a, uh, left, and I have a couple more things I, maybe I wanted to ask, if you don't mind, um, Jeff and, and James. Um, with regard to the to the other um, people from Connecticut, Miguel and and um, and Ken Ireland, when you had that meeting, is there any sense that you're maybe uh, is there going to be a, like a support group started for Zanarese here? Well, um, 
separately from what, you know, the Innocence Project is doing, or are you going to keep in touch, or, or you know, I'm just curious about that aspect. Well, yes, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm open. I was just with Ken Ireland. Uh, we had did this dance session show on the um, on the Innocent Fund, and um, after the show, uh, we went, had dinner, and, you know, it was so great talking to Ken, and um, he has his conversation now, and it's just so great that he can move on with his life and just, and just live now, and before, when I come around them, I felt like I felt I didn't feel comfortable because I had my conversation and they didn't, you know, and it was like, you know, why they don't have their conversation, why they can't move on with their life, why they can't, you know, at least have some type of funding so that they can live, you know, they already suffered enough, you know, 20-something years or better, you know, Ramon and Ken why it's taking so long for them to get compensated. You know, it, it didn't take long for them to get convicted. You know, it took a long time for them to prove their innocence. Why is right. it taking so long for them? And it just was a joy just being by him and seeing that, you know, he has something now and he can, you know, go travel a little bit if he wants to and go. It just was a blessing. It was awesome. And Is it true? Um, is it true, James, just to let people know? He was convicted for 21 years in a, uh, through DNA. He was yes. um, he was released. Now, did I read correctly that he, he uh, the governor somehow positioned uh, on the Board of Pardons and Parole to um, help evaluate cases? Is that true? You're going out... Um, Yes, but he he, he he was he was put on the the, the board of pardons and parole, and yes. I think it, and one of the things to to that uh, to that end, Donna, you asked a question about the support network. Karen yep. Goodrow and Brian Carlo and Tiffany Stevens and the, everybody involved with the Connecticut Innocence Project. The the thing that impressed me the most um, from the outside, kind of looking in, um, and I'm sure James experiences this they're like guardian angels and they yes. build a support network around these guys immediately. And to this day, you know, Karen and Brian, they're, they're checking in. They, they, but they literally built a network around, around these guys. And I think in, it, of, of so many things that went wrong, they're everything that's right about this, you know, not only the way they handled James case, but the way they've worked with them after. Right, James. Yeah. Yes. They never, they never leave you. They, you know, they're going to always. And just like uh, me and Brian, um, I we just text each other, and we're going to get together um, this summer and have some lunch. And, you know, and um, and now his daughter is working for Legal Aid, which um, helped wow. me and kept my evidence and stuff. So it's going to be interesting, you know, this summer talking to her and, you know, just, um, you know, and her dad, which is, which is my angel to, you know, Brian and, and Jerry and Karen and, and just all the people that help, you know, it's just, that's the part, you know, let's just all, if we all give a little, we all can give a lot, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and it's just that. Family with you and, you know, that's, that's just wonderful. And I, I'd like to say that I hope you are now a part of the Shattered Life family here. And I hope that we, both Jeff and you and I can keep in connection because I really would so much like like to do that, and if we can do anything else to assist you in any way, 
you know, or do another show down the line or help with your book, um, you have an open invitation from me, James. Thank you. you know, and, Thank you and, so and, much. And, and Jeff, really, because you are an inspiration here. And uh, Delilah, just wondering if you have any parting thoughts or questions you'd like to ask from your perspective. Well, well I think I it's just been a fascinating show and yes. and an issue that needs 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 attention because there are hundreds of thousands of other people um sitting in prisons right now that are in the same right. situation and we need to help them. Right. Yes. And I'm so grateful we have such a, such a wonderful group of people in uh in the Connecticut Innocence Project and I I had no no idea that, you know, they were so effective and I'm hoping that other states can replicate yes. this and with James' help and and with your book. So tell us one more time again um information how to contact either of you and your book before we close close out our show. Well, if you go to thepowerofconviction.com, thepowerofconviction.com, you'll find a link to buy the book. You'll find links to invite James to speak. You'll find contact links. You'll find our bios. Uh, so really everything you need to know, you can get to go by going to thepowerofconviction.com. Very, very good. Well, like I say, I, I, I thank you so much. And, James, do you have any parting words of inspiration for our for our listeners who may be, you know, um, the survivors of crime? Yes, just, you know, like I said, you know, just keep loving everyone. And you know, I just learned that when you give love, love comes back to you. And, you know, keep forgiveness in your heart, you know. And, and you know, and that's, that's basically, that's it, you know. Because, like I said, love is going to prevail over evil all the time. Yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. So we uh, we wish you the best, and let's let's keep uh, let's keep in contact. And Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful weekend in uh, in Boston, if that's where you're headed now. You and, uh, <laughs> and and Jeff, thank you so much. Please do keep in touch with us. It was our so pleasure. We'll be, thank you so much. Okay, very good. We'll be closing out this edition for Shattered Lives. So please stay tuned, everyone, for uh, our next show. And um, have have a good weekend. Thank you so much, Delilah. So good evening, everyone.